Why don't they get it? Many of us have great products, services, ideas, and advice, but the people we want to influence don't respond. Our guest will help open our eyes to the opportunities in front of us every day to ethically influence people. It's Brian Ahern on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations. Those are the ones that generate by far the most and most effective word of mouth. That means more growth in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. On this program, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. First, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, evidence, visuals that you want your marketplace to know about. Two, your messengers the network of people who can help you share that message, and three management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. Simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. My new book is now available through Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, wherever fine business books are sold. For the particularly skeptical and discerning, you can also check out a sampler, the introduction and chapter one, and do so free before you buy on my website, jimcar.com slash books. Today's guest knows a lot about how you can be more influential at work and outside of work, but without being false, pushy, or smarmy. Brian Ahern is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People and an international keynote speaker, trainer, coach, and consultant. He specializes in applying the science of influence and persuasion in everyday situations. He is one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently hold the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. That comes directly from Dr. Robert Cialdini, the most cited living social psychologist in the world, and I might add a professional hero of mine. Brian has been in the business arena for more than 30 years and training people for more than two decades. In addition to his influence sales and leadership training, Brian has coached regional vice presidents, sales managers, and field sales reps. He is a chartered property casualty underwriter, CPCU. Brian's first book has just come out titled Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. Brian, welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. It's my pleasure, Jim. I have to ask you first, this is your first book that has just come out. And you have had, as we mentioned in the intro, a long, both in the corporate world and as a thought leader and speaker. You've been doing this for a while, having just published my first book as well. This is not anything to be taken lightly. What was the driving rationale for you in terms of organizing the book and putting it out there in the first place? Well, the rationale was this. Over the period of time that I had been associated with Dr. Cialdini and immersed myself in his work, Dan Ariely, Dan Kahneman, and others, I find people are fascinated by the research. 
they're really fascinated by it. But then I find most people really struggle to actually implement it in day-to-day situations. And I view myself as that conduit that can take that complicated information, digest it, and put it into terms that people go, oh, I get it. That makes sense. I can actually go do that. And that's really what I've focused on over the last 10 plus years when I would train independent insurance agents and others. How do you take this and begin to use it in a day-to-day way that will make a big difference for you. And that's part of what I find really appealing about what you've done here. Uh, Your work is centered on, as you say, the powerful everyday opportunities to influence others and to do so ethically. It's not hacks, not tricks. On this podcast, we talk about the everyday messages of business. So Brian, if we might try to make clear for us the sheer volume of those opportunities. What is it that is perhaps common but overlooked opportunities that all of us have to influence others? Well, the opportunities are far more than people would realize because when you think about your success at work, a lot of that is contingent on your ability to get others to say yes. But also when you go home, whether you're interacting with your spouse, significant other, your kids, your neighbors, when those people more willingly say yes to you, life tends to be a little more peaceful and happy. So I look at this as a 24-7, 365 skill. And what people don't realize is just how much they're actually using it. So as an example at work, Dan Pink wrote, To Sell is Human. And in that book, he cites a survey of more than 7,000 American business workers who were not in sales, but were asked the question, how much of your day do you spend trying to influence, persuade, or convince people to do something? And the average that came back was about 40%. So for your listeners, think of this for a moment. If you're like that typical person that was surveyed, you're spending more than three hours of your day engaged in this one skill that we call influence. And so there, are, there have to be these opportunities that you just don't see right now. And a lot of that comes down to because you don't understand the science and you don't understand the language. And Jim, I'm sure you can relate to this. I find this example really drives it home. When people buy a new car and they begin to drive that car in the days and weeks after the purchase, it's as if everybody bought their car. You just begin to see it everywhere. But the reality was that car had been out on the road well before you made that purchase. Your eyes were just open to something that had been there all along. And as you begin to study the influence process and really learn the language, I think your listeners will be pleasantly surprised at how much they start seeing these opportunities that have been out there but they just didn't recognize them. That's a great example. And to your point with Dan Pink, I believe he called those three plus hours a day that we spend, even if we're not in a a selling position, I believe he called it non-sales selling. Mm -hmm. You talked about how a lot of people might not engage in this because they they don't recognize the opportunities. They don't necessarily see the signals or have a way of putting that together. Would you also say that there's a change in mindset that we might need to have as well. The reason I ask is I'll know a number of people who might say, I do have good ideas and I do have things that I want to share, but I don't want to be that person, right? I don't want to be pushy or salesy or to interrupt people or or something along that will make them feel uncomfortable. So how do you address that in the work that you do? Okay. Well, 
first of all, let's talk about the word sales. I do work primarily with salespeople. And there tends to be this thought that we're all selling all the time. And I think a lot of people push back on that because they don't always have high opinions of salespeople. They view them as people who are pushing things they don't want or don't need and putting pressure on them. And nobody really wants to be that person. I look at selling as a transaction where ultimately dollars are exchanged. When you move away from that, when it's what people would call selling your ideas, to me, that's persuading. And most people, I think, gravitate more towards influence or persuasion, but we still also have to get some people to think about it's not manipulation. Just because you're trying to convince somebody to do something, maybe you're trying to convince your boss or your employees or whomever it is, just because you're trying to convince or persuade them, that doesn't mean you're manipulating them. And what we really emphasize is how do we do this in an ethical way? Because the reality is we are all every single day trying to get our needs met. And how we make that communication is our attempt at influencing another person. I'm sure many of your listeners who might push back a little bit about the selling or the persuading, they are still trying to get their kids to do their homework, trying to get their spouse to help them out, trying to get somebody (laughs) at work to do something. So call it what you want. That's persuasion. And what we want to teach people is what does the science have to say about it? so that we can take it out of the realm of good advice. What does the science say? And then how can you use that in a way that's beneficial for the other person as well as for you so that you can feel comfortable and good about the fact that you're operating ethically? And I guess underlying that as well is our ideas, trying to get kids to do their homework or trying to maybe influence an important initiative inside your company or to get people to donate their time or money to a great cause, whatever that might be, It assumes, and I think this is almost always true, that people have good intentions. We're not trying to get people to do something that's not good for them. We're not trying to fool them, right? We're trying to do something that we believe is in their best interest as well as our own, right? Absolutely. If we're going to be ethical in our attempts to influence and persuade other people, one of the criteria is it has to be good for them as well as you. If it's only good for you, then you don't care about that other person and you really will probably manipulate them. You know, a classic example, and, and if somebody's a car salesman, there are I know there are good car salesmen, but the classic example that people think of is that used car salesman who will say or do anything to get you to buy the car and will try to hide the flaws and not tell you everything because what do they care about? Making the sale. Because they feel if you leave the lot, you'll buy from somebody else who puts the pressure on you. And so they will say or do anything to make that sale. The ethical individual understands that you can even talk about some of the shortcomings or the flaws in whatever your product or service is and actually gain some credibility in the middle of that. So you can feel good about yourself that you're being honest, you're coming across as trustworthy to the other person. There's a way to do that. So then everybody is making a decision on above board information. It's interesting, and I'll uh, pause for a moment because... A few weeks ago, Brian, we had a a guest on the podcast named Todd Capone, who uh, had gathered some data about the power of online ratings and reviews and how that drives sales or doesn't drive sales. And what he found that was very consistent across different industries and over uh, periods of time is that the most effective and effective meaning converting into sales, the most effective ratings were not an average of five out of five or 4.9 out of five, it's between 4.2 and 4.5. 
So it's not that what you offer is flawless or without cost or that it's right for everybody. But as you were saying, that there are some weaknesses. It's not perfect, but it's good. It's a good idea. It's a good product. It's a good service. And, and you're trying to do the right thing for everyone involved. Yeah. And here would be an example. I mean, I would tell your listeners, if you are looking for the deep science behind the influence process, you want to read Robert Cialdini's book first. You don't want to pick up my book first. My book doesn't go deeper into the science. It goes into the more practical application. It's supported by the principles of influence, which are deeply researched and have been for more than seven decades. But somebody could read my book and go, well, gosh, this is pretty light compared to Cialdini's. It's supposed to be. So for them, it's maybe not the right tool. But, you know, Jim, you're married. I'm married. Many of your listeners are. My spouse is perfect for me. <laughs> She's not perfect for other people, and I'm not perfect for other people either. So it's okay. We all have flaws. Nothing will be perfect. And, and so I agree that when I look at ratings, I tend to go right to the ones or twos. I'm just curious. Why have these people, why are they outliers? And I will read a number of them to get a sense of well, what's going on here. And I, for me, that adds more credibility to it. Certainly. You know, with my wife, I made a far better choice than she did. I'm just so glad that she hasn't uh, had too much buyer's remorse <laughs> from years ago. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship here between, you mentioned the deep science and you bring forth, by the way, in your book, you bring forth those principles. And I think you do so in a very practical, bite-sized nugget way. And it's, it's very true to those principles, obviously, but there is a lot of science behind it. And it seems like for a, a lot of people when presented with all of this, that there's a bit of a train wreck here. It's like, well, wait a minute. A lot of this stuff seems irrational, if you will, in terms of how people make judgments and the shortcuts that they take. For generations, there was this assumption, especially in economics, that people were rational actors, that they would carefully, objectively weigh benefits and costs, and they would tend to operate according to that. And yet, what we have found through social psychology and a lot of other areas of science is that it is messier than that. It's not irrational, but they're just these shortcuts and heuristics. And there's so many inputs and decisions to be made that our heads would explode if we were trying to be this calculator in terms of evaluating everything. So let's talk about uh, how you see what's kind of rational and predictable versus what is a little, little messy in all of it. Okay. Well, rational, we have to remember rational and irrational are human terms. And for quite some time, we have put rationality, our definition of that, up on a pedestal. And thinking that that's how all people should operate. They should think that way. They should behave that way. And then we start looking at what the social science says and, and the behavioral economics. And people don't always make decisions according to the human definition of rational. But that doesn't make it bad. I mean, we may call it irrational because it's the opposite of what we were expecting, but it doesn't make it bad because most of this, if you go back over the history of humans, our thinking and behavior was designed to help us survive. So here's an example. You can present the very same idea by talking about gain or savings or loss or overpaying, but how you talk about it will make a big, big difference. If I were to tell you, Jim, if you buy our product, you will save 30%. 
that will motivate you. That will motivate a lot of people. But the science says a lot more people will be motivated if you were to say something like, Jim, I've got to be honest with you. If you don't make the purchase, you will lose 30% because you're going to just continue to overpay for what you've currently got. And what the science says is significantly more, anywhere from two to two and a half times more people will respond to that loss frame and actually make a decision. The reality is it's the same 30%. So it's all about how we talk about it. Now, when it comes to your response being greater to that loss, the loss aversion, social scientists are pretty much in agreement that over the course of humanity, if you had an abundance, well, that'd be wonderful. But if you didn't have enough, that could be the difference between life and death. So humans, in a sense, were programmed to be very sensitive to what they may lose. And those that were more sensitive had the better opportunity to survive. Now, in today's world, we might look at that and say, well, that's still not really rational. Why should you be more motivated by that? It's the same 30%. I'm not going to debate that. I'm just going to tell you that's how humans think and behave. And if you want to be effective in how you communicate, use what the science says so you'll be far more effective in getting people to say yes when you need them to do so. It's interesting when you talk about what we we call loss aversion, right? So I tend to weigh the potential for loss more heavily, as you say, more than two times than the potential for gain. I suspect that in your longtime work in the insurance business that that came into play. Oh, absolutely. And one, this quick story that I'll share covers the opportunity because we didn't see it until we learned about influence. And then it was also tied into the loss aversion. I worked for a pretty large insurance company here in Columbus, Ohio. One of my roles was to help us get new agencies to sign up. When we learned about scarcity, that loss aversion that people had, we recognized that we had an opportunity to incorporate that into some of our marketing. So at the end of the third quarter, we had one additional paragraph that went into an email that was blasted out to the agents who we were courting. And that last paragraph would say something like this, Jim, part of the reason that I'm contacting you today is to let you know we're only looking to appoint 50 agents in our 30 operating states. As of the end of the third quarter, we've appointed 40. We hope you're one of the remaining few that we appoint by year end. And then it was signed by the vice president of sales. When we sent that email, he came over to me within an hour and said, I can't believe it. I asked him, what do you mean? And he said, I've already had eight agents either call or respond to that email. I have never had any call or email within an hour of sending it out. And we knew the only difference was we had added that paragraph. We had an opportunity we'd been missing. We really didn't look to appoint a lot of agents. And by the end of the third quarter with 40 appointed, that's not a lot left that we're going to try to get appointed. And so scarcity came into play. And when they read that, they began responding. And what better opportunity than have them contact the vice president of sales, you know, the guy who could probably sell the merits of the company better than anybody. There is not just one button to push. There is not one switch to flip. And you can go too far, by the way, message managers. You could turn it into what we might call a fear appeal, and you can push it too far. Like if you don't pick up the phone now, you know, you're going to die. <laughs> People won't respond right. to that very well. But in that situation, I guess you could also, one of the more powerful 
other mental shortcuts that Dr. Cialdini uh, has has studied and that uh, you apply is that of social proof. So when we're not sure of what the right or best decision is, if it's not objectively that clear, then we will look to people who we think are similar and uh, to us in some way into our situation and look at what they do. And so I guess in that situation, if you said, you phrased it, we're trying to get 50 agents, we already have 40. And you could have, and so the scarcity principle is we only have 10 remaining over a, a time frame. I hope you don't get left out versus you, I guess, could have said in the moment, we've already had 80% of people who have responded. So therefore we're kind of popular in a great choice. I don't know if you had an opportunity to test that. I'm just pulling this out of thin air, but but there are principles that can apply differently in different situations, right? Yes. And that's a great point because really you've got both principles working at the same time. You've got a mass of people, 40 isn't a lot, but it's a lot compared to 50. So really, you know, you've got a lot of things working here. You've got compare and contrast, which is 40 of 50. That's a lot. You've got scarcity, only 10 slots left. You've got social proof. 40 people like me, 40 insurance agency owners across the country have already taken this step. So you really are getting a groundswell. Now, you're never pointing all of this out in the email. You're not saying, Jim, by the way, consensus 40, <laughs> all of that operates at the subconscious level for most people. Now, the scarcity part probably was a little more in the forefront because you can quickly go, wow, there's only 10 spots left. But subconsciously, at a minimum, people are, are starting to recognize, hey, a good number of people who are like me are already taking this action. And that's where you start to get this momentum. And sometimes people will say, you know, that stuff doesn't work on me. And those are the people that I typically will smile and I just nod my head because I know it works on them more than anybody because they're probably very unaware. It's like the person who says, I can't be fooled by a magician. Yes, you, you can. <laughs> <laughs> we might be overconfident. We certainly like to assert our, our judgmental autonomy and say to ourselves and to the world, no, no, all this trickeration here. That doesn't work on me. I'd like you, we've been talking a little bit about how to use some of these principles in a persuasive message, how to get your point across and inspire others to action. There's some principles here that can apply to another area that is uh, very important. We cover here on the, on the podcast, and it's very important in everyday business life, which is getting more people on your side to help you share that message. Whether you want to call them messengers or your tribe or your raving fans or your members, whatever that might be. People sometimes lack confidence in how they can be more influential and be more persuasive than they, I would suspect, also be lacking confidence in how they can get other people to join with them and share the message. So how do you work with people and get them to see the opportunities to enlist more people alongside them? Okay. Well, I think depending on the length of time that you have too, if you've got opportunity to build relationships with people, that is going to get people on your side more than anything. If you, for example, are engaging reciprocity where you're truly trying to help other people without an expectation of return. Now, that's not to say that you don't know in the back of your mind that if you need a favor, you can ask those people. But when I try to enlist people to help me, I start by helping them first. 
And as an example, with the rollout of my book, the marketing part of it is very time consuming and got to go back to people and say, hey, would you, you know, give me a quote for the book? Would you do a pre-read or would you give me a review on Amazon? You're, You're asking people to do a lot of things. The people that I went back to and asked were people that I knew I'd been helping for some length of time. And those people were very, very willing to help me. I also would rely on the principle of liking, that people are more likely to say yes to those they know and like. And so over the course of time, not only would I help these people, but I I tried to have conversations with them, if nothing else, at least online, to get to know each other. If I have opportunities in person to get together and share a beer or coffee or lunch or something like that, so that we get to the point where we both really like each other. Those are very powerful in terms of people's willingness to become part of your tribe and want to help you. So Jim, I literally, when I was seeking some help with my book, and I was emailing a hundred or so people that I thought would be potentially most helpful. I started in the subject line, I get by with a little help from my friends, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. <laughs> and, and it was just a reminder of we're friends here. You know, I'm, I'm asking for some help here. And I got help from virtually everybody. So you've got to invest in people. And the more you invest, the more they'll be willing to invest in you. And the good news is when you are able to help lots of people, you multiply your resources significantly. And those become the very people. And now, of course, social proof can take over too. If a lot of people see that many other people are kind of on your team, they'll probably want to be on your team too. Interesting. And how you used the word friend in the subject line, because uh, that also, I think, gets into the way we see ourselves as being a good friend to other people. And so this would be, you're queuing up something that frankly would be pretty easy for your friends to do and to help you out as well. And then they can feel good about the contribution that they were able to make as well. Yeah. And then it's an everybody wins. You know, I felt good about helping them. They feel good about helping me. And it's very likely that whomever needs help in the future, both parties will be willing to respond. So everybody wins in a situation like that. It's the exact opposite of what people do too often, which is tit for tat. Well, they didn't help me, so I'm not going to help them. Well, maybe if you took that step and helped them, maybe they'd be willing to help the next time. Let's take from that example that you had here and maybe point out a couple of other things as well. I think of both networking and also how to, for lack of a better term, activate the relationships that you do have. So on one hand, networking And it's a loaded term as well, something that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with. It seems a little unnatural, seems a little manipulative sometimes, but that is adding to your portfolio of relationships. And then we could talk maybe a bit about how in certain circumstances, when you would like some help or you'd like some input, how you can activate relationships into conversations and into ways that you can help influence them. So let's start with the networking piece. This is certainly in business an important thing gets talked about a lot, but also people don't know how to do it effectively and oftentimes don't like the steps that go through it. So do you have from your work some tips on developing and adding to your portfolio of relationships through networking and other means? Sure. And I'll go at this in two different ways. One is asking or helping somebody 
genuinely trying to help them. So I've got an example that happened recently. There's another podcast that I've listened to pretty regularly, and there were some things that were said, and I thought, hmm, Becky would be a great guest on that podcast. I'd listened to it for a long time, and so I have a feel for the person who does the podcast and, and the kind of guests. So I approached the individual and said, you know, I, I know this person, and I think they'd be a great guest, and here's why. And he came back and said, well, you know, tell me more details. And I contacted Becky and we talked about how would we want to position this. And then I took some information from her and I sent it back to him. And he said, you know, that sounds interesting. I'm going to run it by the team. Becky appreciated that. And right on the heels of that, she said, oh my gosh, I forgot. I know so-and-so and she does public relations and she's associated with this podcast and, and got me on that podcast. So my network is going to expand significantly by having been on that podcast, just like being on your podcast. I'm sure I will get people connecting on LinkedIn or maybe starting to join my email list and and follow my blog. So that was one way. Again, it engaged the reciprocity. I genuinely wanted to help her. There was no expectation, but immediately she thought of, hey, I can help you because I know this person. The other avenue is sometimes you simply need to go and ask. You maybe haven't done something recently, but you know I might say, hey, Jim, is there any opportunity that you could introduce me to Joe? Joe's doing this. I know you're connected with him. I'd really like an introduction there. Something that you can do that will help make life easier for somebody like you, Jim, and also give a better chance of making the connection. If you say, yeah, I'm happy to do that. One of the things I might say is, I don't want you to worry about what you need to say about me. How about if I send you a couple of paragraphs, one maybe for my professional background, one for my personal background. You can look at it, massage it a little bit so it has your verbiage, and then send it on to Joe. Well, that that relieves you of thinking of what do you have to write and maybe taking 30 minutes to do that because I hand it to you. This worked like a charm when I would go out and visit insurance agents at the old company that I was working for. Because at the bottom line is, like, Jim, if you go and do a public speaking engagement, you hand somebody your bio to read. They don't just go up there and go, hey, I met Jim. He's a really good guy. You're going to enjoy listening to him. You want them to know certain things. So you hand them a bio to introduce you at the public speaking event. You can do the same thing with networking. In a sense, give your bio to somebody and say, here, I don't want you to worry about what you need to say. This encapsulates what will be most important for that other person to understand about me to get this relationship going. Message manager listeners, this was unfortunately the point at which we lost our connection with Brian Ahern. So I couldn't give him a properly recorded thank you and send off. We'll have all of the links to Brian's work in our show description, of course. That was Brian Ahern, the author of Influence People. Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. It's a good read. I I recommend it to you. And I'm very pleased that you joined us on the Manager Message podcast, whether you are a returning listener or perhaps this is your very first time in. We continue to build momentum for the podcast. That's because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings, which do help. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few seconds and tap subscribe and offer your five-star rating and review. That means you won't miss any episodes and you'll be helping the robots let other professionals know about this podcast. 
If your professional success and your organization's growth are at all affected by your message, especially the spoken word, and we know that they are, then I recommend you visit my website, jimcard.com. There is a lot waiting for you there right now. A number of free resources, including a sampler of my new book, has the introduction and the first chapter for you to read free of charge. There is another resource that's free to you called the Message Manager Memo. It's a weekly message, a bit of practical guidance that will show up in your email inbox. You can sign up for that on the website as well. You'll find lots of other content as well as a number of speaking topics. I'm doing more of that, speaking to associations and corporate groups. You're probably part of at least one of those. And if you know of a group that's looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow the business, then you'll see a speaking page there on the website with specific popular topics and ideas programs for members, for business units, for rising professionals, and for executive leadership teams. All that and more on the website, jimcard.com. And you can email me directly. My email address is right there, as well as my direct phone number, the same one that my spectacular wife uses to let me know if there's something I need to be doing at the times. So you'll find that all on the website, jimcard.com. So let's talk. And until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.